This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. Inheritance, Continuity, Chapter 5. Covenant breaking and social discontinuity. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Exodus 20. 4 through 6. The accusation is frequently made against those Christians who get involved in public protests, especially nonviolent in a position, that they are revolutionaries. The Bible is opposed to your revolution. The Bible is opposed to revolution, the protesters are told by fellow Christians. Your tactics are immoral. They could lead to revolution. The Bible tells a very different story. The Bible teaches that social continuity is based exclusively on covenant keeping. Social continuity is a gift from God to obedient societies. In contrast, a revolutionary break in society is God's judgment on corporate covenant breaking, the negative sanction of disinheritance. It is ethical rebellion that brings the radical discontinuity of revolution. It is the voting public's silence or passive acquiescence to judicial judicially sanctioned acts of covenant breaking that bring the painful social discontinuities of history, i.e. war, famine, plague, and political revolution. How many generations of peace? The third commandment says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. When God says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers, he means that he visits rebellious society and sees it generation after generation. God does not break into history with his comprehensive covenant sanctions at the first sign of national inequity. He is patient. He is merciful. He extends time to that society for public repentance. But he visits iniquity generation after generation. He sees and does not forget. Then in the third or fourth generation, after the initial public iniquity began, he brings his negative covenantal sanctions. This is the essence of social discontinuity. This is the essence of revolution. It is God's revolution against the covenant unrighteousness. In contrast, God shows mercy unto thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. What does thousands refer to? It has to mean thousands of generations. The word third and fourth generation are contrasted to thousands. Does this mean the history will go on for at least 40,000 years, i.e. 40 years per generation? Not necessarily. The term thousands is symbolic. It means till the end of time. God's covenant blessings are continuous and endless if man remained faithful to the terms of God's covenant. Generation after generation, people inherit the blessings of God. This is the covenantal doctrine of inheritance. It is the basis of anti-revolutionary social continuity.
The curses come at the end of much shorter intervals. While good is allowed to compound and grow over time, evil is cut short in the midst of time. Social continuity is available only to those societies that remain covenantally faithful to God. This is the positive sanction of God, blessing. Social discontinuity is the inevitable result of corporate covenantal rebellion that persists for three or four generations. This is the negative sanction of God, cursing, the perseverance of the saints. A saint, if you remember, means someone who has access to God's holy, set-apart sanctuary. Through prayer, formal worship, and the sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper, the individual Christian gains entrance into the very throne room of God. He becomes a counselor to God, just as Moses was a counselor. Through prayer, the saint counsels God. He offers suggestions. Moses' example is representative of what it is we are to do. Moses, the counselor, challenges God not to do what he said he would do, namely destroy the Israelites in the wilderness. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Exodus 32:11-13. The significant fact here is that God listened to Moses' counsel and heeded it, and the Lord repented of the evil which he brought to do unto his people which he thought to do unto his people, Exodus 32:14. What was the basis of Moses' appeal? God's honor. He appealed to God's past promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob. These promises had been based on God's covenant with them. He had promised an inheritance to Israel. Would God cut off this inheritance in the midst of history? If so, then the nations around the world would call God a liar, a deity impotent to bring his word to pass in history. He did not appeal to God in terms of good intentions or righteousness of the Israelites. He appealed to the good intent and righteousness of God. He appealed to God's name. He listened to his prayer and answered it as Moses suggested. This is what it means to pray. You become God's counselor. As a saint, you are set apart. You are granted access to God who brings his will to bear in history. His holy, set-apart will is seen in his sanctions, blessings, and cursings. They are seen long-term. The evidence of his positive sanctions is continuity, meaning corporate inheritance, generation after generation. The evidence of his negative sanctions is discontinuity, meaning corporate disinheritance. The said, the true saint perseveres. Moses persevered with the people of God for four decades. God also persevered with them through Moses, his representative covenant agent. It was the sign of God's covenantal faithfulness to Moses and Moses' covenantal faithfulness to God that Moses was a leader throughout this period. Moses committed one major sin. He tapped the rock with his rod in order to get it to bring forth water for the people. This was in defiance of God's instruction that he simply speak to the rock. Numbers 27-12 Moses was, to some extent, still under the influence of Egyptian magic. The occult magician believes in power through physical manipulation. Magic teaches as above, so below. 
you can manipulate the local environment, you can control the cosmic environment. If you wonder why modern humanism's uh, hypothesis of environmental determinism is a first cousin to primitive magic, search no further. Environmental determinism teaches that you can remake mankind ethically by remaking man's environment economically through politics. This is significant. What is significant is the nature of God's punishment on Moses, personal disinheritance. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given thee, them. Numbers 20 through 12. After 40 years of wandering around in circles in the wilderness with the Israelites, until the first generation of rebellious exiles died off, disinheritance, all except Joshua and Caleb, who had been faithful to God's promise of inheritance, Numbers 14, Moses would not personally be allowed to cross over into the promised land. He would not personally inherit his portion of the land as a Levite, Exodus 2, verse 1. He could not own rural land permanently, but he could lawfully own property in the Levitical cities, Leviticus 25, 32-33. The true saint the true saint finishes what he begins. Finishing one's assigned task is what counts. This is even more important than what you initially say you will do. Jesus said to the chief priests of the temples and the elders, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and he said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, the first. Jesus say unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of salvation, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards, that ye might believe him. Matthew 21, 28-32. If a protest is righteous, the faithful sinners will come. Even if they say initially that they will not come, eventually they do come. There is no wave of protest from Protestant Christians when the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the Roe v. Wade decision in January 1973. It took several years after Roe v. Wade before Christians, especially Protestant Christians, began to figure out what was really involved in publicly sanctioned abortion, murder, covenantal unfaithfulness, and the threat of God's visible wrath. Even today, only a comparative handful of Christians have even bothered to picket local abortion centers. But the saints will persevere. The first son, who initially says no, will eventually show up for duty. He is the true heir. But the longer he waits, the higher his costs. By the time he shows up, the confrontation will have elevated. He will have to serve in a far riskier war. There will be others who have served their time in the trenches and will have marched ahead. On the other hand, there will be some who have grown weary of the struggle and gone home. But history does not march backward. The escalation will continue. This fact frightens those Christians who do not want to bear personal responsibility as the representative agents of the covenanted corporate fellowship of Christians. Some will retreat silently, leaving the battlefield altogether. Others will retreat and call it true service with the official excuse, 
that the confrontation is now illegitimate because it has escalated. Where do they think confrontation over a literal life and death issue would lead? Did they imagine that the abortion question would be settled in the peaceful surroundings of a church supper? These defections in the name of a supposedly higher moral vision make it more difficult for those who delayed joining the fight from the early stages. But on the other hand, the very, the very nature of the higher risks will attract more dedicated people. It will also attract fanatics on both sides who lack personal self-discipline, which is why I outlined some basic organizational screening devices to remove them before they bring shame on the protest. See Chapter 3, Subsection on Self-Government Under Biblical Law. If there are a few saints who actually do appear for duty in the literal life and death battle over abortion, when God will surely disin- then God will surely disinherit this generation, just as he disinherited the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel when he raised up the Assyrians to scatter them and when he raised up Babylon to capture Judah over a century later. Who's discontinuity, Satan's or God's? We begin with Satan's discontinuity. When Satan came to Eve and tempted her, He sought to destroy God's continuity of inheritance. If he could get Eve to disobey God, and if Eve would lure Adam into disobedience, then Satan could gain the inheritance of the world, at least temporarily. By disobeying God, Eve and then Adam would come under Satan's covenantal rule. No man can serve two masters, Jesus said, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon, Matthew 624. Satan knew this and acted in terms of it. He understood that Adam's disobedience to God's law would break the covenant between God and man. It would lead to man's disinheritance. Disinheritance in the Bible is covenantal, but it is ultimately disinheritance by execution. God had warned Adam that in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 22:17b. The sanction of disinheritance is a preliminary down payment on the future death sentence. We have to understand the biblical meaning of of inheritance. Paul wrote in Ephesians that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that after that ye believed. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 10-14 It has always been Satan's goal to thwart this plan by getting God's children, Adam and Eve originally, and then God's covenantally adopted children, John 1, 12, subsequently to break their covenant with God through ethical rebellion. Thus he seeks to provoke men to break the covenant through disobedience. To put it another way, Satan seeks to provoke a revolution by means of an ethical discontinuity. This means revolution through covenant breaking. God's discontinuity. How does God restore the discontinuity between him and his children? How does he heal the breach, a covenantal breach? He does it by means of an even greater discontinuity, the covenantal break at Calvary between him and his son Jesus Christ. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. God disinherited his son, Jesus Christ, 
so that he may adopt his lost children, the children of Adam. God the Father had to execute his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because there can be no covenantal disinheritance without the death of the disinherited heir. Only the death of God's son could meet this demand. For Jesus Christ became the one through whom God's adopted children might inherit. Thus Jesus Christ served as both the sacrificial lamb and the sacrificing high priest, as the son who died and also as the testator who died. This dual role of Jesus Christ is taught specifically by the apostle, by the epistle to the Hebrews. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of, of the new covenant that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Hebrews nine thirteen through 20 For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that we he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews nine twenty four through 28 God has reestablished covenantal continuity with his people by means of this ultimate discontinuity, the death of his son. This discontinuity cannot be broken once it is established. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Nothing can separate us from our inheritance. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of, God, of Christ? Shall tribulation, 
our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our peril, our sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 28-39 In short, the discontinuity introduced in history by Satan is overcoming Jesus Christ. Thus, it is the Christian's God-assigned task to preach the gospel of reconciliation, both in word and deed, to the lost. The great discontinuity is forever behind us, the death of Jesus Christ. Whose continuity? Satan's or God's? Satan seeks to defend his kingdom. He seeks to get men to worship him by failing to worship God. This is the essence of his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Again, the devil taketh him up unto an exceedingly high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give unto thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4, 8-10 Satan sought to lure Jesus into Adam's original discontinuity by tempting him to rebel against God, and the strategy failed. Satan seeks to maintain man's con- continuity of rebellion against God. He has captured his kingdom through Adam's rebellion. He now occupies it as a squatter, occupies unclaimed or stolen land. He can retain control over this domain only by getting the sons of Adam to acknowledge his title to the inheritance. This is why the great discontinuity of the crucifixion of Christ now threatens his kingdom. That discontinuity reestablishes the original covenantal continuity between God and redeemed mankind. The continuity of covenant breaking, man's rebellion, is threatened by God's free offer of the gospel. Those who accept the offer of the, of the gospel break their existing covenant with Satan. They establish a covenantal continuity with God by means of soul-saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be born again or born from above. It is a legal act of adoption. A person moves from the family of the first Adam to the family of the last Adam. He moves from inheritance with Satan to inheritance with Christ. What is Satan's inheritance? Then shall he say unto them that are on thy left hand, Depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation twenty fourteen through 15 This is the future discontinuity. Separation from God's blessings begins a permanent continuity, the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire, cursing. God's continuity. God's continuity is ethical. His word of law to man establishes his continuity. Think not ye that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, 
that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17-20 When Christians take seriously God's law, they place themselves visibly inside His covenant. This is a visible testimony to other men regarding the covenant faithfulness of God. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out, and to be trodden under underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, 13-16 It is this continuity of obedience that is the essence of a Christian's kingdom citizenship. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 3-4 And whatsoever ye ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. 1 John 3.22 And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. 1 John 3.24 By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, 2-3 And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. 2 John 1, 6 Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Revelation twenty two fourteen. Discontinuity and continuity in each kingdom. Who then is the true revolutionary? The person who peaceably obeys the law of Satan's kingdom or the person who resists? Satan calls the person who freely obeys his representatives a law-abiding citizen. God calls the person who freely obeys Satan's representatives a covenant breaker. Satan calls the person who resists his representatives a revolutionary. God calls the person who resists Satan's representative a covenant keeper. So whose definition of law-abiding citizens should a Christian accept? Satan's or God's? Whose definition of revolutionary should a Christian accept? Satan's or God's? It ought to be clear by now whose definitions are covenantally binding? God's. Thus, when we seek to discover which course of action is morally binding on us, we should first seek to discover God's definition and descriptions of moral covenant keeping, behavior. We should not allow Satan's civil representatives to define our categories for us. We should look to God's definition for guidance. There are no common definitions any more than there are, more, are common principles of civil law. There are God's definitions and God's law. We begin with these. It is the myth of humanism that anything on earth or, any, or in heaven or is, is neutral. Everything is covenantal. Nothing is neutral. Breaking with Satan. There must be a fundamental break with Satan in the life of every Christian. This is the discontinuity described in the Bible as the transition from wrath to grace or from death to life. If it is to become eternally binding, this transition must be made in each person's days on earth. 
The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John three thirty five through 36 This fundamental break is supposed to be visible in the life of each Christian. Therefore, with respect to Satan's kingdom, each Christian becomes a revolutionary at the point of his conversion. He breaks his covenant with Satan and establishes it with God. Rahab did this when she became treasonous to Jericho by making a covenant with the spies. Joshua 2 To make the covenant with God, she had to become treasonous to Jericho. This was the same covenantal act. To claim her inheritance with God's covenant people, she necessarily had to renounce her inheritance with Jericho. She did this symbolically by placing the scarlet thread in her window. Joshua 2, 18-19 Rahab became a righteous revolutionary. She had no choice. Once she had decided to covenant with Israel's future through the spies, she revolted against Satan's kingdom. This is inescapable for anyone who covenants to God's kingdom. It is astounding that Christians are not informed of the revolutionary implications of conversion, either before or after making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is almost a kind of embarrassment on the part of soul winners to tell people the radical nature of making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It is almost as if the soul, winner te- soul winning techniques are designed to soften the radical distinctions between saved and lost, covenant keeping and covenant breaking. The potential convert is being asked to make a clean and permanent break with everything evil in his past. Yet this is all too frequently downplayed in the presentation of the gospel. Then the convert matures. He begins to see that this break with evil is definitive. He recognizes as time goes on that he must break publicly and systematically with evil. In short, he must make public his born-again status as a revolutionary against Satan's kingdom. Yet as he steadily makes this break visible, he is warned by fellow Christians that he is going too far. He is becoming a fanatic. More to the point, he is becoming an embarrassment to those who have not yet matured in the faith as far as he has. His visible covenantal faithfulness is a disturbing testimony against their own continuing compromises with evil. This is what the battle over abortion is all about extending the revolution of Christ's kingdom against Satan's kingdom. Yet there are many Christians who are afraid of the word revolution. They are afraid of public confrontations with evil. Why? Because they are still immature in the flesh. Conclusion There is an inheritance promised by both Satan and God. Satan lies about his inheritance. He offered Jesus Christ the kingdom of this world, when in fact he possessed no lawful title to any of the aspect of this world. God, on the other hand, tells the truth about the nature of his inheritance. He tells us that this is his world and that we have become fellow heirs with Christ. Heirship in God's family is covenantal by adoption. It is therefore ethical. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be it that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Romans 8, 14-17 Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
This is a faithful saying. And these things I will, I will thou affirm constantly that they, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These works are good and profitable unto men. Titus 3, 5 through 8. Satan hates his view of the kingdom. He hates man. He wants to inherit through the death of man. When Adam died, Satan thought he would inherit. Instead, Christ through faithfulness, even unto death inherited and spoiled, collected the spoils of war from Satan's kingdom. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15 Satan is the great promoter of abortion. He delights in destroying man's inheritance. He is at war with God. God says, all those who hate me love death. Proverbs 8.36, bravo. Satan hates God and Satan loves death, especially the death of man. Thus, we should not be surprised to see the battle for the soul of the modern world being fought over the abortion question. It will never be settled until kingdoms Satan is obliterated. Christians must become consistent with their religious presuppositions. They must affirm the right to life. They must commit personally and publicly to the principle that execution is only legitimate for criminals convicted in a court of law for a biblically defined capital crime. Anything else is murder. If Satan persuades Christians to retreat from this fight, then he will have brought God's sanctions into the heads of those who became the apologists for abortion. But covenant keepers may suffer in the period of judgment, just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel went into the Babylonian captivity. God is not mocked. In summary, Christian protesters are called revolutionaries by non-protesting Christians. Two, revolution is a discontinuous disruption of history. The Bible teaches that social, discontinu- uh, that social continuity is God's gift to those societies that are covenantally faithful inheritance. Four, a revolution against evil is a curse from God. Disinheritance. Five, evildoers get a few generations to repent or to compound their evil. They are cut off in history if they persist in their evil. Seven, God grants long-term peace to covenant-keeping societies. The saints persevere. Nine, a saint is someone who has legal access to God's sanctuary. Ten, he is God's counselor just as Moses was. Eleven, Moses appeals to covenant promises, continuity. Twelve, the true saint finishes what he begins. Thirteen, if a protest is righteous, it will draw righteous followers. Fourteen, this sometimes takes many years, as in Roe v. Wade. Fifteen, the longer a righteous person waits, the higher the costs. Sixteen, protests escalate over time. Greater risk. Seventeen, fanatics on both sides are also attracted as the protest escalates. 18. God will disinherit a society that allows public evil to escalate unopposed. 19. Satan's revolution was a discontinuity against righteousness. 20. Adam was disinherited by execution. 21. God the Father restores righteous continuity with the ultimate discontinuity, the crucifixion, of Jesus Christ. 22. This reestablished continuity is unbreakable. 23. Satan seeks a continuity of evil. 24. The gospel's ethical discontinuity, adoption, threatens Satan's continuity. 25. Satan is progressively disinherited as God's 
regenerating grace spreads. 26. God's continuity is ethical, biblical law. 27. Covenant keepers affirm a continuity of obedience. 28. The true revolutionary is the one who seeks to maintain the continuity of Satan's evil reign. 29. The true counter-revolutionary is the one who brings Christ's discontinuous gospel to the lost. 30. The discontinuity of the gospel is from wrath to grace, from death to life. 31. Rahab was a righteous revolutionary. 32. Conversion is a revolutionary act against the continuity of evil. 33. Both Satan and God offer an inheritance. 34. Satan lies about his offer. 35. Satan hates man and hates life. 36. Satan is the great promoter of abortion, the death of man. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.